Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Well, Shabbat Shalom. It's wonderful to be joined by my friend, by my teacher, by my mentor, Rabbi Brad. Artson, uh, Rabbi Dr. Bradley Shavit Artson is the uh, Abner and Rosalind Goldstein Dean's Chair at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and a Vice President of the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. Uh, he is a member of the philosophy department and uh, writes widely on, um, on, on theology and on ethics. He is the author of 12 books and over 250 articles. Uh, most recently, the uh, renewing the process of creation, a Jewish integration of science and spirit. And uh, that is, uh, in fact, uh, why I invited him to join us this Shabbat. It's, of course, always great to be with Rabbi Artson and to be able to learn with him and from him. Uh, but uh, I, in particular, wanted to have a conversation with him this Shabbat, uh, in which we read Parshat Breshit, the uh, first portion of the book of Genesis, in which we uh, encounter uh, the uh, creation story uh, at the beginning of Torah. Uh, and uh, on this Shabbat, we are also observing climate in the pulpits and climate on the Bema in partnership with many uh, faith communities around the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, sponsored by Virginia Interfaith Power and Light. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're looking forward to having uh, a spirited and, and uh, deep conversation about uh, the Torah portion and about our responsibility uh, as Jews uh, toward the environment. Um, so first of all, welcome Rabbi Artsin, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Naf. It's always a joy to be with you. I, I remember the Shabbat I got to spend in the community in Richmond, and that was such a spiritual high point for me, not least to see one of my favorite students shining his light so beautifully you continue to do. So thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. It was wonderful to have you then. It's hard to believe that that was back in 2014. Uh, everything now seems like it's, you know, multiplied by a million years. Yes, before coronavirus and after coronavirus. Right. Yeah. You really get a you really get a sense of uh, what what Einstein was talking about when he when he talks about the relativity of time. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, and uh, you know there are those who uh, look at the parsha this week and and look at the creation story and you know try to uh, integrate or harmonize uh, scientific understanding and religious understanding and you know look at uh, look at the uh, seven days of creation story, the beginning of the Parsha, uh, and say, well, you know, it must not have been, you know, a day is in 24 hours, like our time, uh, that it, that a, a day in God's sight, you know, might be like a billion years our time. Uh, and uh, so that can account for the differences in, you know, uh, how we scientifically understand the, the age of the world. Um, but I know that that is uh, not where you sit. Uh, and uh, in, in learning from you, it's uh, no longer where I sit either. Um, and before we get so in the weeds on that particular question, I just wanted to hear, you know, as we look at uh, and think about Parshat Breshit this year, um, what's coming up for you? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. And this is, of course, one of everyone's favorite Torah portions. Um, may, may well be Genesis' best-known part. 
Um, I want to draw everyone's attention to what I think of as the most dangerous and interesting sentence in the whole Bible. So, so the book starts, and for those of you who want to follow along, I'm starting at the very beginning, right? Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. When God began to create, doesn't mean in the beginning, it's our story picks up here. So at the moment that God is starting to create heaven and earth, and then there's a hyphen, and in the middle of a sentence, because it really should go straight from there to Vayomer Elohim Yehior, God says, let there be light. But in the middle of that, from when God began creating to let there be light, it says, that the earth is chaos, it's unformed and void. That's tohu vavohu. V'choshech apnei tohom, and there is darkness on the surface of the deep. V'ruach Elohim rachefet apnei hamayim, and the wind or spirit of God flutters over the surface. Now what's interesting about that, and we've been trained not to notice it, is that means that God doesn't create the universe out of nothing. That in fact there's chaos when God starts to create. The chaos always existed. And God doesn't stop the chaos from existing. It's just that the place that divine creativity happens is where there's chaos. So fluttering over the deep and, and to home, um, an interesting word, that word comes to us from the Assyrian, right? Tiamat was an ancient pagan goddess who had to be slaughtered by the creator God, and then her carcass provided the earth and all life. So there are hints that she's this unstable pagan divinity, this goddess, because she's still causing trouble, but effortlessly God flutters over that, and that's where things start to emerge from. So not creation out of nothing, creation out of chaos. And what creation is, is taking the chaos and inviting it towards cosmos, inviting it to order. And then the second thing I want us to, to notice is that what creation does is go from the very simple to the increasingly complex, which should be shocking to anyone who is a student of evolution, because that's how Darwinian evolution goes too, right? That, that the Bible intuits and knows that you start with the stars and the planets, and then you separate the light and the water, and the land and the water. And then you start to have simple life, which gets more and more complicated. And the other thing I wanna draw everyone's attention to is that God does the first act of creation alone, let there be light. But from that point on, everything is involved in its own creation. Everything is created luminehu, according to its own kind, which suggests that the universe isn't passive in the process of creation. The universe and God co-create in partnership together. In the same way that if you decide to paint with oil, it's gonna turn out differently than if you paint with watercolors. The medium that you use contributes to the outcome of the finished product. That's true in creation, true. If you work with cattle, you're gonna get something different than if you're working with monkeys. So life cascades in complexity and life participates in its own advance. Those I think are the ongoing lessons the last of which I'll say right now, and then we can launch on other things if you want, is that people are part of that process. 
there's an aspect in which we see ourselves as unique and different. God breathes life into us, and it doesn't say that God does that for anything else. Um, and yet there's also, we come from the earth too. We are made out of the same stuff that everything else is made of. And in that sense, we don't step outside of nature. We just bring a different level of self-awareness to nature. There, there's, there's so much richness in there. Um, it's, it's hard to know which, which thread to pull. But, um, but maybe let's start um, with, with humanity, where, where you left off. You know, because, um, you know, as you said, there's something distinct about humanity uh, as is reflected in that creation story, and also something um, that is similar about humanity to the rest of, of, of creation. So uh, what does that say to you? You know, what, what is that, what, what lessons do you derive from that? Or, or what implications does that, you know, uh, leave uh, that, uh, that, that we are, you know, both within and in some level outside of the rest of creation? So uh, that's what I used to think. And I want to, I want to speak against that right now. I think that what you've just articulated is what 90% of religious people, Jews, Christians, Muslims, think when they read scripture. And that's because we've been trained to read through Plato's spectacles. Um, without going into that rabbit hole, here's what I want to say. If you talked to a leopard, it would tell you what's unique about leopards as opposed to all other living things. If you talk to jellyfish, they would tell you what's unique about jellyfish as opposed to other things. There's a wonderful movie on Netflix right now, My Teacher the Octopus. Um, Octopi would also tell you that they're unique. The only thing that's different about people is we think we're unique in being unique. But that's not true. If, if you were measuring ability to run really fast on the African veld, we're actually really poor at it. If you want to measure being able to dive to the depths of the ocean, we have no skills whatsoever. What we're very good at is using reason and language to make our way in the world. But the fact that we're unique in that doesn't mean we're uniquely unique. Every species is one of a kind. Every species is doing something that no other species can do. So for me, what I get out of that is that doesn't separate us. That doesn't pull us out of nature. We are purely a product of nature, just like everyone else, meaning all other species. So, so that means that because we're part of nature and we have distinctive gifts, that comes with responsibilities. We're an apex species. We eat them, they don't eat us. And, um, and, and we uniquely have the ability to alter the entire planet's ecosystem, right? That's not to say that other species haven't trashed specific areas. There's ample history to show that most living things run, run ruin wherever they live in large numbers but then they move on to a new field or a new meadow or a new tree, and then they're fine. Humans are the first species we know of who are in the process of making the planet uninhabitable for their own kind, leaving nowhere to go. Um, and that does make us distinctive, but we've also been given the knowledge to know that that's happening and to know that we can do something about it, um, and to imagine what the consequences will be for us and our children if we don't. You know, I'm out in California right now. 
we are having the hottest October in recorded history, except for two years ago, which was the hottest October in recorded history. And we're having more fires than we had at any point until last year, when we had the most fires we've had at any point until the year before that. So there's clear, you don't need to guess where climate change is going. You can actually watch it. And to me, a lesson out of the Genesis story is that we have the tools to take better care and therefore an obligation. So I'm taking it then that you're not in the camp that says uh, that uh, the, the proliferation of, of wildfires in California is, is purely a, an outgrowth of poor forest management. Well, fortunately, when you think about where to point the finger, there's never just one thing to blame. So I think people frame it as either or. Either climate change is just a fluctuation that happens anyway, or it's purely human beings. And the answer is no, it's not. It's both. There are fluctuations in our climate uh, over the eons, and people are making it worse. Fires, I don't think we've been very good at managing the forests. Um, there's a built-in conflict of interest. The people who live most intimately with the forests, and that is to say the foresting companies, have an interest in our not managing the forests in an ecologically sound way. Um, and, and they have a lot of clout and a lot of power. Um, but I don't think it's one or the other. I think we have managed our wildernesses badly. And, and there's also a reality to climate change that makes the consequences more dire. So let's talk about that for a minute, because, you know, in, in thinking about what you were reflecting on, uh, you know, with respect to the biblical creation story and uh, the, 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 the place of human beings within creation, our, our, our relative uniqueness, our, you know, capacity to impact our environment in, in, in ways that, uh, that, you know, other uh, animals uh, don't necessarily have other creatures don't necessarily have so it you know it strikes me that you know there are um that there are a, a few camps out there um that uh that that uh, that seem to um play within that dynamic you know one is the the camp that kind of you know looks at the uh biblical creation story and says you know um we are, you know, part of an ecosystem um, that is far more complex and powerful um, than than our human beings. We are, you know, we're we're, we're a small, relatively insignificant part, uh, and you know, uh, the the great power in the cosmos is is God, uh, and so you know that means that you know uh, human beings. It's it's sort of unthinkable that human beings really have the capacity to impact the climate with with our with our actions right that uh, you know that you know climate's change we had ice ages we you know we we have a, you know other eras uh, and uh, and so we're you know in the midst right now you know like um uh, you know the vice president said this in in uh, the vice presidential debate the other night right that the climate is changing right uh, and so we, there's an acceptance of that fact but not necessarily an acceptance of the fact that you know human uh, humanity is is causing the climate to change. 
then there is some confluence between that camp and the camp that I, that I want to mention next, which is the camp that, that essentially says, um, you know, might acknowledge that human beings are impacting the climate, but effectively says, you know, um, like we don't care, right. That, uh, that, that, um, that humanity is the pinnacle of creation, uh, that, uh, we have, you know, the, the, the capacity, uh, and the right to utilize creation the way we want to utilize it, um, to harvest from creation, what we want to harvest, to live the kind of lives and build the kind of civilizations, um, that enable us to, uh, flourish, uh, we'll, we'll reject any, uh, any in, in initiative that will, you know, make our, uh, that will roll back, you know, uh, uh, civilization as we know it or, or, or the lives as we know it, the comforts that we know as we know them, conveniences as we know them. Uh, and then there's some kind of like, I think, uh, um, conflation of the two things, whether by, uh, I think sometimes by choice, right, that says, um, that says, because we don't want to do things differently, and because we believe that human, humanity is, is special, um, we're going to pretend as though, uh, human beings are not really having an impact on the climate so that we don't have to do anything about it. So like, so there's, I think that, that you know, that place in the Venn diagram, but then I think that there's another camp uh, that says, uh, you know, because human beings are a part of a larger whole of creation, um, because we're not outside of creation, um, uh, that, uh, that, um, that we really don't have a uh, special place within creation, even as an apex predator. We have no right to utilize uh, the, the earth's resources in a way that, that's, that's detrimental to the earth, even if it's beneficial for us. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, so a camp that essentially says, you know, um, that, you know, sort of Gaia-centric, right? That, uh, that, that what matters is the health of the planet and not necessarily the health of, of human civilization. So given those three camps, what do you say to each of them and where do you find yourself? I find myself alienated from all three. So here's what I need to warn us all about. The Bible doesn't belong to any political party. It is not enchained or contained within any single contemporary approach. So part of the genius of the rabbis of old was that they read the Bible and they let the Bible unpack itself. So to those people who wanna say that people are the pinnacle and purpose of creation, and then use that as a license to be irresponsible and to say, well, then we can plunder the planet however we want, either because that's what God wants or because God will clean up after us. I wanna say that is a profoundly unbiblical viewpoint. And so here, I just wanna put for all of us to hold together, I'm just gonna quote the Bible here. It says in Genesis 2.15 that God took the person and planted them in the Garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. That's our mandate, right? The purpose that we are in the garden for is to till it and to tend it. That is not the same thing as destroy it. That is not the same thing as pillage it. And it doesn't mean that the yardstick of what's appropriate behavior is our own self-interest. It means we have to tend and till the garden. If it's not a more beautiful garden, then we're getting it wrong. What, what alienates me from the other people, the Gaia people, is they seem to know what the planet thinks. Um, and that always struck me as odd for two reasons. One is the Gaia people, ironically, 
share with the hard right the idea that people are somehow outside of nature. Um, that means that they're prepared to say, you know, the hard right says we can plow down a forest and make a parking lot because that's what we want to do and we are the conquerors of the earth. And then the Gaia people say you can't do a parking lot where there's a planet because that's unnatural. And what I want to say to the left wing nuts is that if we are as natural as a beaver, then if a beaver dam is a manifestation of nature, so is a parking lot, so is a shopping mall. So the question is not, can we do it? The question is, is it wise? Because here's the last thing I want to tweak in what you said, Rabbi. We're not ruining the earth. For all we know, climate change is the earth's way of shrugging us off. I know personally a whole bunch of cockroaches that are waiting in the wings and are eager to move into our homes as soon as we vacate. So nature will be fine without us. It's just that we won't. What, what we're doing is making it impossible for our own species to thrive. And that just seems incredibly unwise. So if what we have is a stake in the current biodiversity, because that makes up our planet, we and our children and their children can live on, if we want our grandchildren to be able to go outside and breathe, then we have to make certain choices, not because of we have the right to do it, we don't have the right, I don't care about that. I'd like the world to be a world in which my great-grandchildren can play outside. That's what I want. I'd like them to see dolphins. So what do you, uh, what do you think, what do you say to, um, to either camp, right? To the, to the camp that seems not to care uh, about uh, whether or not uh, our grandchildren, uh, great-grandchildren will, will have, you know, be able to inhabit the same kind of planet that, that we're able to, that we enjoy now. Um, or actually, I mean, you know, even, even more so that the, that the children and the grandchildren of uh, people who, you know, live in uh, the global South, uh, people who live in, uh, you know, uh, low-income areas, right? Uh, you know, who are who are more immediately in the crosshairs of climate change, right? It's not only not their children and their grandchildren, right? It's it's them specifically. So, what do you say to to people who who seem not to care uh, about, uh, you know, the 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 impact of our actions on on those future generations? On the one hand, and on the other hand, to people who you know who who effectively say. Um, you know, a shopping mall is less natural than a beaver dam. Uh, and because it's not good for the earth, you shouldn't have the shopping mall either. Right. So right. like, so not just your children, your grandchildren, but like right now you shouldn't get to enjoy uh, the things that you enjoy or have so the kind of I life think, that you would I want I think to those are both distortions of Judaism. And I think Judaism in most cases is really the lodestone of wisdom. So I would say both are forms of rejecting God and rejecting God's covenant. Like, where in the world did you see in the Bible where it says you should prioritize your short-term pleasure over the long-term transmission of tradition from one generation to the next? What, what Jewish writer in, in the Hebrew Bible has ever said you shouldn't worry about your children and the world that you're making for them. That's, of course, everything we do. We march to the promised land. We leave slavery. We try to build a just society. We do all of it for our children's children. 
right? And in that regard, we reflect the same wisdom as other indigenous peoples, right? That, that you worry seven generations into the future. Um, that just seems so obvious, particularly out of this biblical story, right? I mean, we're told explicitly, your mandate is not to trash the place. Your mandate is to care for it and to pass it along. So, and, and, and we see that in other areas of Jewish law that you, you let the land lie fallow every seven years. Every seven times seven years, you let it lie fallow for an entire year. There's all kinds of ways that Judaism links us as a practitioner of our religion to caring for the, the diversity and vitality of life around us. But, but that doesn't mean no change. The world is always changing. And sometimes we put up the shopping mall because that's the best thing to do for us and for the region. Being able to make a living is also really important. The challenge, I think, Rabbi Knopf, is that we've gotten ourselves boxed in. Everything is so partisan and so hyper. And this is one of those rare things where I don't, I don't think there are good people on all sides, but I certainly think there are bad people on all sides. Um, there, there are, there's a way in which everybody decides which side is saying it, and then they formulate their opinion. So if it's my guy who said the thing, then I'm going to defend it, even if, if I know that were your guy the one that said it, I'd be jumping down his throat. Right? And we do that on both, which means you can't have a real conversation. And this puts the democracy at peril. Right? How do you have a republic if you can't talk across party lines and have a substantive conversation that doesn't immediately become, no, that's not how we vote? So I guess what I think we can be doing, and this is the unique task of religion these days, we can be the place where people prioritize open, honest exchanges of viewpoints for the sake of learning, not for the sake of winning. And in that regard, I'd want to say to the person who says, the earth was made for us, I'd like to quote the old rabbinic midrash. It asks, why is it that even something as insignificant as the gnat was created prior to the creation of people? And the answer that it gives is to remind you that the world wasn't made for your sake, it was made for the sake of all of creation. And that's where our efforts need to be planted. So it seems to me that uh, you know that 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 part of the challenge of the you know hyperpartisan era in which we find ourselves is is you know not only that we you know we find it hard to uh, debate across ideological divides. Um, and that we tend to uh, embrace ideas when the, uh, and actions when they come from our side um, uh, and revile them, even if they're the same ones when they come from the other side. I think that that's certainly true. But it also seems to me that like that, that sometimes the very you know nature of reality is at debate, right? And I think that climate change is is you know one of those is one of those areas where you know there's there's a the, the disagreement is not necessarily around ideology, right? Is not necessarily around, you know, uh, you know, do we have the, you know, what's the, what's the limit on the human right to exploit the world, uh, the, nat the, you know, the, the resources of the earth. 
um, but rather the, you know, and so it's not around ideology. It's not necessarily around policy even, right? It's not around, well, you know, this thing is happening. Uh, you know, what, what, what is the right approach to ensure that we do have a good planet for our grandchildren? And, you know, what, how much should we, how much should we spend now? How much, whatever, right? But the question is more on the level of, is this thing actually happening at all? Right. Um, but that, don't, the, the question, I guess, what I'm proposing, probably enough, is that what we've lost is the respect for the pursuit of truth. And, and you know, I know he's, his reputation has taken a beating, but Thomas Jefferson um, said that the... He's still, for the most part, in good graces in, in Richmond, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he's had better days. I appreciate that. Um, I think he's probably looking a bit askance at his most passionate allies, but nonetheless, yes, that's true. Um, so President Jefferson, um, who has long been one of my heroes, said that the solution to democracy is more democracy. <clears throat> what we've lost is the, we're so tribal that we take the position of our tribe and then we only read what reinforces that opinion. But, you know, back in the day, Walter Cronkite gave the news to everybody. And then you made of it what you made. So I think we need to work through our congregations to bring people back to pursuing the truth wherever it comes from. And that, that's Maimonides who said that. You know, you should embrace the truth whatever its source. So if someone who denies climate change has some interesting data, we need to look at it. And we need to understand it and understand its implications. And if someone who is concerned about the human role in climate change has interesting data, we need to look at that data. And then we need to have a respectful opinion in which we can be ideologically separated, but not personally vituperative. That's what's been lost. We, we go very quickly from I disagree with you to I despise you. And, and that we all are going to have to find a way to roll back. We all feel victimized. We all feel abused. We've created a, a political scenario in which nobody feels at home anymore. Um, but we've got to roll it back. We need to get back to a place where we can talk with each other and learn from each other. And there too, look, I want to hold out a, a final thing. I know our time is getting running low. The fact that there are two creation stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I was going to ask 3, you about that. Right, is I think deliberate on the part of the Torah, right? The Torah is saying to us, there's more than one good way to tell the story. And you can communicate things in incompatible ways that each tell you something important. So there's some truths to be learned out of Genesis 1 that you need Genesis 1 for. And then there are truths that can only be learned from Genesis 2, and you need Genesis 2 for that. And the fact that the two are really literally in conflict with each other that's not the point. The point is learn from diverse sources. It's baked into the Torah. By the time you got to the second chapter of the Torah, you already have to be willing to be a pluralist in terms of where you get your information and your openness to conflicting data. But you're data-driven, right? And that we need to respect the truth. If God is one, then there is one reality. And there might be multiple ways to live that reality, but we need to be in pursuit of the one. So is there is there a point of harmony 
between those two creation stories, right? In other words, they, they tell divergent and in, in some ways, like you said, stories that are in conflict. Yes. Uh, but uh, where do you see them agreeing? Uh, and, and what do you see as the unique but not necessarily conflicting insights that each story offers? Well, what they agree with is that creation is not simply the meaningless throwing together of facts, that it has a purpose and it has a direction, and that we have a role to play in the attainment of that goal. That's shared by Genesis 1 and 2, and by Psalm 104, which is another great creation story in the Bible, um, and one that I heartily endorse. That, that both books see the world as created and being in some way a reflection of the creator, so that it's not true that everything that happens is literally the will of God, but over the course of the millennia, God's will continues to flutter over the dark, and that we are invited as God's partners in creation to continue to make manifest cosmos as opposed to chaos. And then I think they have different things to add to it, that in Genesis 1, Adam becomes a man at the moment that Eve becomes a woman, and they are created simultaneously, not the one without the other. That I think is profoundly important, that our gender identities are dependent on all gender identities, not just in distinction of the other identities. Um, so that as we understand the dignity and capacity of women differently, that changes our understanding of the dignity and capacity of men um, and what it means to be a guy. I also think that Genesis 2 sees people as derivative from each other. Um, and that therefore says that we, we naturally fulfill ourselves because none of us are complete without others. And so we find our fulfillment in the company, in the loving company of other people. Um, I think that's also a profound and deep truth that needs to be in the world. Um, there are others, but I'll leave it at that for now. I've been thinking about this uh, a lot for reasons that uh, we don't need to get into here. I, I've been uh, curious this summer um, about exploring uh, what Richard Elliott Friedman calls um, the um, the hidden book of the Bible, uh, what um, uh, the author's name is skipping me at the moment calls the book of J, um, which, you know, which starts with, with Genesis chapter two. Um, and and you know understands that um, Genesis chapter one is a is a priestly source. So I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, if if the if the Bible um, if the Torah only had Genesis two, would that change the message? How would that have changed Judaism and and Jewish ethics in your mind? I read your uh, um, theology. I read your creation ethics. Uh, and uh, your environmental ethics, and, and there's and it's so heavily influenced by Genesis one, it, with the exception of the passage, you know, Lo of Dal Shomra to till it and to tend it from Genesis two. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering. Well, you know, one other thing. One other thing that Genesis two brings. Yeah. Genesis one doesn't complete the story. Right. Right. What completes the story is the beginning of Genesis two, which is Shabbat. Shabbat mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's crucial which is why it just shows that while I, I absolutely believe that the Torah we currently have was documents woven together, reflecting the wholeness of ancient Israel. And at the same time, I affirm that while there's an active role for people in shaping the Bible, this is the Torah 
God wanted us to have. Um, I think that the fact that creation is reaches its climax not with humanity but with Shabbat is another reinforcement of that same very important message. So I think there are ways in which the Bible would be very different without Genesis 1, not to mention that I don't know a single book that has a better opening paragraph than Genesis 1 provides. Um, but I think the fact that it's woven so naturally into Genesis 2, forcing us to hold them both, is intrinsic to the, because that, that's setting us up to read the whole Bible, not as merely a collection of facts, but as an exploration of meaning and purpose. And that's how I think the Torah wants us to read it. It's really beautiful. Um, I think you're right. I think that uh, Genesis 1 does have a more powerful, memorable opening, uh, but also there, there's, you know, there's, there's uh, extraordinary wisdom and power in the, um, in, in the wovenness of those stories. And, you know, uh, that, uh, and I love thinking about it that way, that, that this is the Torah that God wanted us to have, not just the Torah that uh, a, a wise editor wanted to give us. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm holding that, but there, there's something that's been kind of lingering in my mind as we've had this conversation. Uh, maybe this will be the last or one of the last questions I want to ask, you know, so, you know, in, 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 um, holding both of these creation stories, recognizing that we have a, a Torah that, that weaves together traditions and holds them side by side, that we have a Talmud that, uh, that, that. Uh, holds together different traditions side by side and, and, and debate and dialogue, um, you know, does give off uh, an ethic and, and a sense that, you know, that, that we are and ought to be uh, pluralists uh, and, and, you know, and, and hold uh, multiple viewpoints and look for the truth and the beauty uh, in, in, in many uh, points of view, you know, in creation, in Genesis 1, you know, the Laminehu of uh, the, the diversity of, of, of our world, you talk a lot about as being, you know, so powerful and, and, uh, and, and so significant uh, or something that's reflected in the Torah and also something that's manifest in, in Jewish ethics of, of maintaining biodiversity. But I guess the question that I have is, you know, there's a serenity to, uh, to, to, um, to how you presented it uh, a, you know, a, looking at these points of view that are in tension, but seeing them kind of, you know, uh, existing in harmony. So do you, are you in the camp that believes, would you call climate change uh, a crisis? Um, and if it's a crisis, um, how does that impact, you know, the, uh, the, the, the approach to um, holding different viewpoints and harmonizing different viewpoints at the same time, uh, rather than kind of approaching something as an emergency? And barreling through. Uh, so look, I think the challenge is we don't have enough of a um, coalition to barrel through even if we wanted to. The country is evenly divided in two very different worldviews and very different ways of assessing information. So we're going to have to win allies if we hope to be able to move forward. And while I believe there's, in many areas, more than one way to do things, in the area of policy, you have to make a choice. And that's a clean political, we're, we're doing that right now as a country. We're running two candidates with very different platforms. They will espouse their viewpoints, and the American people 
will have to choose one or the other, and then there'll be the role of the minority party to keep them honest and to keep them accountable. Um, I, I believe in that democratic process. I think that's the best we can do. I do think this is a crisis. Of course, this is a crisis. Um, if in fact we can modify the direction of climate change so that it is less extreme and so that the temperatures stay within the range of what mammals and primates need so that we don't have drought and flood all the time so that you know that that's that has to be among our top priorities the only thing i will caution you rabbi Naf, is that we have multiple emergencies all going on at the same time and part of being a functioning nation and a functioning commonwealth like virginia is you have to address multiple issues simultaneously so i don't think we can afford not to put climate change among our top priorities, but that doesn't mean it replaces all the others. It means we need to be attending to all the challenges because at the end of the day, they're all interconnected. Right, and I think that goes back to one of the first things that you said um, in this conversation, which is that the process of, of creation is um, uh, bringing cosmos, uh, bringing chaos into cosmos. Uh, and you know, so uh, if we have, you know, many uh, intersecting emergencies uh, happening at the same time. But the, the work that's ahead of us is um, is is uh, addressing all of them, not just one of them, because addressing just one of them leaves the chaos intact. Amen. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and, and for sharing your wisdom uh, and, and for continuing to be our, our Rebbe and our teacher in, in this and in many things. Um, I want to just encourage people, if you haven't uh, already uh, picked up a copy of Renewing the Process of Creation, um, it's really uh, an extraordinary read, along with everything that Rabbi Artson has, has written uh, that you can get your hands on. I highly commend it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks so much. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian, using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.